Chapter Nineteen of Deerbrook. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Deerbrook by Harriet Martineau. Chapter Nineteen. Home at the Hopes. The evil consequences of Mr. Hope's voting for Larry had not been exaggerated in the anticipations of his friends and vigilant neighbors and these consequences were rather aggravated than alleviated by the circumstances that Mr. Lowry won the election first. The inhabitants of Deerbrook were on the watch for any words which might fall from Sir William or Lady Hunter, and when it was reported that Sir William had frowned and sworn an oath at Mr. Hope, on hearing how he had voted, and that Lady Hunter had asked whether it was possible that Mr. Hope had forgotten under whose interest he held his appointment to attend the almshouses, and the neighboring hamlet, several persons determined to be beforehand with their great neighbors, and to give the benefit of their family practice to some of the better politics than Mr. Hope. In another set of minds, a real fear of Mr. Hope as a dangerous person sprang up under the heat of the displeasure of the influential members of society, such were slow to have recourse to another medical attendant and undertook the management of the health of their own families till they could find an adviser in whom they could perfectly confide when mr lowry gained the contest the population of deerbrook was electrified and the unpleasantness of their surprise has visited upon the only supporter of mr lowry whom the place contained wise folks were not wanting who talk of the skill which some persons had in keeping on the winning side of reasons which time sometimes revealed for persons choosing to be singular and some remarkable incidents were reported of conversations between mr lowry and mr hope in the lanes and of certain wonderful advantages which had lately fallen to one of another of mr hope's acquaintances through some strong political interest mr rowland doubted at his own table all the news he heard on the subject and said everywhere that he did not see why a man should not vote as he pleased mr grey was very sorry about the whole affair he was sorry that there had been any contest at all for the country as it disturbed the peace of deerbrook he was sorry that the candidate he preferred had won as the fact exasperated the temper of deerbrook he was sorry that hope had voted detriment of his name and rising fortunes and he was sorry that he himself had been unable to last to vote for Larry, to keep his young friend in continence. It was truly unlucky that he should have passed his promise early to Sir William Hunter not to vote. It was a sad business altogether. It was only to be hoped that it would pass out of people's minds, that things would soon get into their usual train, and that it might be seven years before there was another election. Hester complained to her husband and sister of the matter in which she was treated by the tradespeople of the place. She had desired to put herself on a footing of acquaintanceship with them, as neighbors and persons with whom there must be a constant transaction of business for life. She saw at once the difference in the relation between tradespeople and their customers. In a large town like Birmingham, and in a village, where there is but one baker, where the grocer and hatter are the same personage, and where you cannot fly from your brother be he ever so much your foe hester therefore made it her business to transact herself all affairs with the village tradesmen 
she began her housekeeping energetically and might be seen in mr jones's open shop up in the coldest morning of january selecting her joint of meat or deciding among brown sugars at tucker's the grocer's after the election she found some difference in the matter of most of the shop people towards her and she fancied more than there was with some of these persons there was no more in their minds than the consciousness of having discussed the new family and mr hope's vote and come to conclusion against his principles with others mrs rowland's influence had done deeper mischief a few words dropped by herself or reports of her sayings circulated by her servants occasioned dislike or alarm which hester's sensitiveness apprehended at once and forthwith exaggerated she complained to her husband that she could not go to the shops with any comfort and that she thought she must turn over the housekeeping to morris margaret remonstrated against this and by being her sister's constant companion in her walks of business as well as pleasure hoped to be able to keep the peace and to preserve or restore if need were a good understanding between parties who could most materially promote or injure such others comfort the leisure hours to which she had looked forward with such transport were all checkered with anxiety on this subject in the intervals of speculation on another matter to which she found her mind constantly recurring in spite of her oft-repeating conviction that it was no concern of hers where mr enderby was what he was doing and when he would come day by day as she spread her own books before her or began to write she wondered at her own listlessness about employments to which she had looked forward with so much eagerness and when she detected herself gazing into the fire by the half-hour together or allowing the ink to dry in her suspended pen she found that she was far as ever from deciding whether hester was not now in the way to be less happy than ever and how it was that with all her close friendship with philip enderby of which she had spoken so confidently to maria she was now in perfect ignorance of his movements and intentions the whole was very strange and in the experience somewhat dreary her great comfort was edward this was a new support and a strong one but even here she was compelled to own herself somewhat disappointed this brotherly relation for which she had longed all her life did not bring the fullness of satisfaction which she had anticipated she had not a fault to find with edward she was always called upon by his daily conduct for admiration esteem and affection but all this was not of the profit to her which she had expected she seemed altered the flow of his spirits was much moderated but perhaps this was no loss as his calmness his gentle seriousness and domestic benevolence were brought out more strikingly than ever margaret's disappointment lay in the intercourse between themselves that edward was reserved that beneath his remarkable frankness there lay an uncommunicativeness of disposition no one could before his marriage have made her believe yet it certainly was so though hester and she never discussed edward's character more or less though hester's love for him and margaret's respect for that love rendered all such conversation impossible margaret was perfectly well aware that hester's conviction on this particular point 
was the same as her own, that Hester had discovered that she had not fully understood her husband, and that there remained a region of his character into which she had not yet penetrated. Margaret was obliged to conclude that all this was natural and right, and that what she had heard said of men generally was true even of Edward Hope, that there are depths of character, where there are not regions of experience, which delay the sympathy and sagacity of woman. However natural and right all this might be, she could not but be sorry for it. It brought disappointment to herself, as she sadly suspected to Hester, while continually and delightedly compelled to honor and regard him more and more, and to rely upon him as she had never before relied. She felt that he did not win, and even did not desire any intimate confidence. She found that she could still say things to Maria which she could not say to him, and that while their domestic conversation rarely flagged, while it embraced a boundless range of fact, and all that they could ascertain of morals, philosophy, and religion, the greatest psychological events, the most interesting experiences of her life, might go forward without express recognition from Edward. Such was her view of the case, and this was the disappointment which, in the early days of her new mode of life, she had to acknowledge to herself and to conceal from all others, one fine bright morning towards the end of january the sisters set out for their walk willingly quitting the clear crackling fire within for the sharp air and sparkling pathways without which way shall we go asked margaret oh i suppose along the high road as usual how provoking it is that we are prevented day after day from getting to the woods by my snow-boots not having arrived we will go by Mrs. Howell's for the chance of their having come. Mrs. Howell had new expressions of countenance, the gracious and the prim, till lately Hester had been flavored with the first exclusively. She was now to be amused with variety, and the brim was offered to her contemplation. Never did Mrs. Howell's look more inaccessible than today, when she scarcely rose from her stool behind the counter to learn what was the errand of her customer. You guess what I am come for, Mrs. Howell, I dare say. Have my boots arrived yet? I am not aware of their having arrived, ma'am, but Miss Mishkin is now occupied in that department. Only consider how the winter is getting on, Mrs. Howell, and I can walk nowhere but in the high road for want of my boot. Mrs. Howell curtsied. Can you not hasten your agent or help me to buy my boots? One way or another, is there no one in Deerbrook whom you could employ to make me a pair? Mrs. Howells cast up her hands and eyes. How do other ladies manage to obtain their boots before the snow comes instead of after it was melted? Perhaps you will ask them yourself, ma'am. I conceive you know all the ladies in Deerbrook. You will find Miss Miskin in that department, ladies, if you wish to investigate. Hester invaded the domain of Miss Mishkin, the shoe shop behind the other counter in the hope of finding something to put on her feet, which should enable her to walk where she pleased, while engaged in turning over the stock, without any help from Miss Miskin, who was imitating Mrs. Howell's distant manner with considerable success, a carriage drove up to the door, which could be no other than Sir William Hunter's, and Lady Hunter's voice, was accordingly heard the next minute, asking for green sewing silk. 
The gentle drawl of Mrs. Howell's tone conveyed that her, her countenance had resumed its primary expression. She observed upon the horrors of the fire which had happened at Blickley the night before. Lady Hunter had not heard of it, and the relation therefore followed of the burning down of a house and shop in Bickley, when a nursemaid and baby were lost in the flames. I should hope it is not true, observed Lady Hunter. Last night, did you say? Early this morning. There has scarcely been time for the news to arrive of a fire at Blickley early this morning. It is certainly true, however, my lady. No doubt, whatever of the catastrophe, I am grieved to say, and Mrs. Howell's sighs were sympathetically responded to by Miss Miskin in the back shop. But how did you hear it? asked Lady Hunter. There was no audible answer. There were probably signs and imitations of something, for Lady Hunter made a circuit round the shop, on some pretense, and started in at the door of the shoe parlour, just as the right moment for perceiving, if she so pleased, the beautiful smallness of Hester's foot, some low murmuring conversation then passed at Mrs. Howell's counter, when the words black servant alone met Margaret's ear. Hester found nothing that she could wear. The more she pressed for information and assistance about obtaining boots, the more provokingly cool Miss Miskin grew. At last Hester turned to her sister with a hasty inquiry that was to be done. "'We must hope for better fortune before next winter, I suppose,' said Margaret, smiling. "'And wet my feet every day this winter,' said Hester, "'for I will not be confined to the high road for any such reason as this.' "'Dear me, ma'am, you are warm,' simpered Miss Miskin. "'I warm? What do you mean, Miss Miskin? "'You are warm, ma'am. "'Not that it is of any consequence, "'but you are a little warm at present.' "'Nobody can charge that upon you, Miss Miskin, I must say,' "'observed Margaret, laughing. "'No, ma'am, that they cannot, nor ever will. "'I am not apt to be warm, and I hope I can excuse. "'Good morning, ladies. Mrs. Howell.' treated her customers with a swimming curtsy as they went out glancing at her shopwoman the while lady hunter favoured them with a full stare what excessive impertinence claimed hester to tell me that i was warm and she hoped she could excuse my husband will hardly believe it oh yes he will he knows them for two ignorant silly women both observing perhaps but not worth minding have you any other shop to go to Yes, the tin man's, for a saucepan, or two of a size not yet supplied, for which Morse had petitioned. The tin man was either unable or not very anxious to understand Hester's requisitions. He brought out everything but what was wanted, and was so extremely interested in observing something that was going on over the way, that he was every moment casting glances abroad between the Dutch ovens and fenders that half-darkened his window. The ladies at last looked over the way, too, and saw a gig containing a black footman standing before the opposite house. A stranger in Deerbrook, observed Margaret, as they issued from the shop, I do not wonder that Mr. Hill had so little attention to spare for us. The sisters had been so accustomed during all the years of their Birmingham life to see faces that they did not know, that they could not yet sympathize with the emotions caused in Deerbrook by the appearance of a stranger, they walked on, forgetting in conversation all about the gig and black servant. 
Hester had not been pleased by the insufficient attention she had met with in both the shops she had visited, and she did not enjoy her walk as was her wont. As they trod the crisp and glittering snow, Margaret hoped the little Rowlands and Greys were happy in making the snowman, which had been the vision of their imaginations since the winter set in. But Hester cast longing eyes on the dark woods, which sprang from the sheeted meadows, and thought nothing could be so delightful as to wander among them and gather icicles from the boughs, even though the paths should be ankle-deep in snow. Just when they were proposing to turn back, a horseman appeared on the ridge of the rising ground over which the road passed. "'It is Edward,' cried Hester. "'I had no idea we should meet him on this road.' And she quickened her pace, and her countenance brightened as if she had not seen him for a month. Before they met him, however, the gig with the black footman passed them. The gentleman, looking round him, as if in search of a some dwelling hereabouts on approaching hope, the stranger drew up, touched his hat, and asked a question, and on receiving the answer, bowed, turned round, and repassed Hester as Margaret. Hope joined his wife and sister, and walked his horse beside the path. Who is that gentleman, Edward? I believe it is Mr. Foster, the surgeon at Pickley. What did he want with you? He wanted to know whether he was in the right road to the Russell Taylors. The Russell Taylors? Your patience? Once my patience, but no longer so. It seems that they are Mr. Foster's patients now. Hester made no reply. Can you see from your pathway what is going on below there in the meadow? I see the skaters very busy on the pounds. Why do not you go there instead of walking here every day? Margaret had to explain the case about the snow boots, for Hester's face was bathed in tears. Edward rallied her gently, but it would not do. She mentioned to him to ride on and he thought it best to do so. The sisters proceeded in silence, Hester's tears flowing faster and faster instead of walking through Deerbrook. She took a back road homewards, and drew down her veil, as ill luck would have it. However, they met Sophia Gray, and her sisters and Sophia which stop. She was about to turn back with them, when she saw that something was the matter, and then she checked herself awkwardly and wished her cousins good morning, while Fanny and Mary were staring at Hester. One ought not to mind, said Margaret, half laughing. There are so many causes for grown people's tears, but I always feel now, as I did when I was a child, a shame at being seen in tears, and an excessive desire to tell people that I have not been naughty. You could not have told Sophia so of me, I am sure, said Hester. Yes, I could. You are not crying because you have been naughty but you are naughty because you cry, and that may be cured presently. It was not presently cured, however. During the whole of dinner-time, Hester's tears continued to flow, and she could not eat, though she made efforts to do so. Edward and Margaret talked a great deal about skating and snowmen, and about the fire at Bickley, but they came to a stand at last. The footboy went about on tiptoe, and shut the door, as if he had been in a sick room, and this made Hester's short sobs only the more audible. It was a relief when the oranges were on the table, at last, and the door closed behind the dinner and the boy. Margaret began to peel an orange for her sister, and Edward poured out a glass of wine. He placed it before her, and then drew his chair to her side, saying, Now, my dear, let us get to the bottom of all this distress. No, do not try, Edward. Never mind me. 
I shall get the better of this. By and by, only let me alone. Thank you, said Hope, smiling. I like to see people reasonable. I am to see you sorrowing in this way, and for very sufficient cause. And I am neither to mind your troubles nor my own, but to be as merry as if nothing had happened. Is not this reasonable, Margaret? For very sufficient cause, says Hester, eagerly. Yes, indeed, for very sufficient cause. It must be a painful thing to you to find my neighbors beginning to dislike me, to have the tradespeople impertinent to you on my account, to see my patients leave me and call in somebody from a distance. In the face of all, Deerbrook, it must make you anxious to think what is to become of us if the discontent continues and spreads, and it must be a bitter disappointment to you to find that to be my wife. It is not to be so happy as we expected. Here is cause enough for tears. In the midst of her grief, Hester looked up at her husband with an expression of gratitude and tenderness which consoled him for her. I will not answer for it, he continued, but that we may all three sit down to weep together one of these days. And then, said Margaret, Hester will be in the first to cheer up and comfort us. I have no doubt of it, replied Hope. Meantime, is there anything that you would have done to otherwise by me? Was I right or not to vote? And was there anything wrong in my manner of doing it? Is there any cause whatever for repentance? None, none, cried Hester. You have been right throughout. I glory in all you do. To me it seems that you could not have done otherwise, observed Margaret. It was a simple, unavoidable act, done with the simplicity of affairs which happen in natural course. I neither repent it for you, nor glory in it. That is just my view of it, Margaret, and it follows that the consequences are to be taken as coming in natural course too. Does not this again simplify the affair, Hester? It lights it up, replied Hester. It reminds me how all would have been if you had acted otherwise than as you did. It is, to be sure, scarcely possible to conceive of such a thing, but if you had not voted, I should have not despised you in any degree, but lost confidence in you a little. That is a very mild way of putting it, said Hope, laughing. Thank heaven we are spared that, exclaimed Margaret. But, brother, tell us the worst what you think can come of this displeasure against you. I rather suspect, however, that we have suffered the worst already in discovering that people can be displeased with you, that being so extremely rare a lot in this world, and especially in the world of a village, replied Hope. I really do not know what to expect as the rare result of this affair, nor am I anxious to foresee. I never liked the sort of attachment that most of my neighbors have testified for me. It was to their honor, in as far as it showed kindness of heart, but it was unreasonable, so unreasonable that I imagine the opposite feelings which are now succeeding may be just as much an excess. Suppose it should be so, Hester. Well, what then? she asked, sighing. Suppose our neighbor should send me to Coventry, and my patience should leave me so far as that we should not have enough to live on? That would be persecution, cried Hester, brightening. I could bear persecution, downright persecution. You could bear seeing your husband torn by lines in the amphitheatre, said Margaret, smiling. But, but a toss of Mrs. Howell's head is inundurable, said Hope, with solemnity. Hester looked down, blushing like a chidden child. But almost this persecution, said she. What made you ask those questions just now? I find my neighbors more angry with me than I could have supposed possible, my dear. 
I have been treated with great and growing rudeness for some boys. In a place like this, you know, offences seldom come alone. If you do a thing which a village public does not approve, there will be offence in whatever else you say and do for some time after, and I expect that is my case now. I may be mistaken, however, and whatever happens I hope my love. We shall all be to the last degree, careful not to see what offence where it is not attended. Not to do the very thing we are suffering under ourselves, observed Margaret. We will not watch our neighbours, and canvass their opinions of us by our own fireside, said Hope. We will conclude them all to be our friends, till they give us clear evidence to the contrary. Shall it not be so, love? I know what you mean, said Hester, with some resentment. In her voice and manner, you cannot trust my temper in your affairs, and you are perfectly right. My temper is not to be trusted. Very few are, in the first agonies of unpopularity, and such faith in one's neighbors as shall supersede watching them ought hardly to be looked for in the atmosphere of Deerbrook. We must all look to ourselves. I understand you, said Hester. I take the lesson home. I assure you, it is clear to me, though your, your cautious phrase, the we and all of us and ourselves. But remember this, that people are not made alike, and are not able and not attended to feel alike, and if some have less power than others over their sorrow, at least over their tears, it does not follow that they cannot bear as well what they have to bear. If I cannot sit looking at Margaret, does, peeling oranges and philosophizing, it may not be that I have less strength at my heart, but that I have more at stake, more. Hope started from her side, and leaned against the mantelpiece, covering his face with his hands, at this moment the boy entered with a message from a patient in the next street, who wanted Mr. Hope. "'Oh, do not leave me, Edward, do not leave me at this moment,' cried Hester. "'Come back for five minutes.' Hope quietly said that he should return presently, and went out. When the hall door was heard to close behind him, Hester flung herself down on the sofa. Whatever momentarily resentment Margaret might have felt at her sister's words, if vanished at the sight of Hester's attitude of wretchedness. She sat on a footstool behind the sofa, and took her sister's hands in hers. "'You are a kinder to me than I deserve,' murmured Hester. "'But, Margaret, mind what I say. Never love, and never marry, Margaret.' Margaret laid her hand on her sister's shoulder, saying, "'Stop here, Hester, while I was the only friend you had.' It was right and kind to tell me all that was in your heart, but now that there is one nearer and dearer and far, far worthier than I, I can hear nothing like this, nor are you fit just now to speak of these serious things. You are discomposed. One would think you were echoing Miss Miskin, Margaret. You are warm, ma'am, but you must hear this much. I insist upon it. If you would have heard me, you would have found that I was not going to say a word about my husband, inconsistent with all the love and honor you would have him enjoy. I assure you, you might trust me not to complain of my husband. I have no words in which to say how noble he is. But, oh, it is all true about the wretchedness of married life. I am wretched, Margaret. So I see, said Margaret, in deep sorrow. Life is a blank to me. I have no hope left. I am neither wiser, nor better, nor happier for God, having given me all that should make a woman what I meant to be. What can God give me more than I have? I was just thinking so, said Margaret mournfully. 
What follows then? Not that all married people are unhappy, because you are. Yes, oh yes, all who are capable of happiness, all who can love. The truth is, there is no perfect confidence in the world. There is no rest for one's heart. I believe there was, and I am disappointed. And if you believe there is, you will be disappointed too, I warn you. I shall not neglect your warning, but I do believe there is rest for rational affections. I am confident there is. If the primary condition is fulfilled, if there is repose in God together with human love, you think that trust in God is wanting in me? Do let us speak of something else, said Margaret. We are wrong to think and talk of ourselves as we do. There is something sickly about our state while we do so, and we deserve to be suffering as we are. Come, let us be up and doing. Let me read to you, or will you practice with me till Edward comes back? Not till you have answered my question, Margaret. Do you believe that my wretchedness is from want of trust in God? I believe, said Margaret, seriously, that all restless and passionate suffering is from that cause, and now, Hester, no more. Hester allowed Margaret to read to her, but it would not do. She was too highly wrought up for common interests. The reading was broken off by her hysterical sobs, and it was clear that the best thing to be done was to get her to bed under Morris's care, that all alligating conversation might be avoided when Mr. Hope returned. He found Margaret sitting alone at the tea-table. If she had had no greater power of self-control than her sister, Edward might have been made wretched enough, for her heart was full of dismay. But she felt the importance of the duty of supporting him, and he found her, through serious, apparently cheerful. "'I have sent Hester to bed,' said she, as he entered. She was worn out. Yes, just go and speak to her, but do not give her the opportunity of any more conversation till he has slept. Tell her that I am going to send her some tea, and by that time yours will be ready. Just one word upon the events of today, said Hope, as he took his seat at the tea-table. After having reported that Esther was tolerably composed, just one word and no more. We must avoid bringing emotions to a point, giving occasion for... I entirely agree with you, said Margaret. She requires to be drawn out of herself. She cannot bear that opening of the sluices, which is a benefit and comfort to some people. Let us keep them shut, and when it comes to acting, see how she will act. Bless you for that, was on Hope's lips, but she did not say it. Tea was soon dismissed, and he then took up the newspaper, and when that was finished, he found he could not read to Margaret. He must write. He had a case to report for a medical journal. I hope I have not spoiled your evening, said Hester, languidly. When her sister went to bid her good night, I have been listening, but I could not hear you either laughing or talking. Because we have been neither laughing nor talking, my brother has been writing. Writing? To whom? To Emily or to Anne? To a far more redoubtable person than ever, to the editor of some one of those green and blue periodicals that he devours, as if they were poetry and i have been copying music how tired you look well then good night margaret might well look tired but she did not go to rest for long how should she rest while her soul was sick with dismay her heart weighed down with disappointment her sister's sobs still sounding in her ear her sister's agonized countenance rising up from moment to moment as often as she closed her eyes and all this within the sacred enclosure of home 
in the various sanctuary of peace all this where love has guided the suffering one to marriage where there is present neither sickness nor calumny nor guilt but the very opposes of all these could it then be true that the only sanctuary of peace is in the heart that while love is in the master passion of humanity the mainspring of human action the crowning interest of human life while it is ordained natural inevitable it should issue as if it were discountenanced by providence unnatural and to be repelled could it be so was hester's warning against love against marriage reasonable and to be regarded that warning margaret thought she could never put aside so heavily had it sunk upon her heart crushing she knew not what there if it was not reasonable warning whither should she turn for consolation for hester if this misery arose out of an incapacity in hester herself for happiness in domestic life then farewell sisterly comfort farewell all the bright visions she had ever indulged on behalf of one who had always been her nearest and dearest instead of these there must be struggle and grief far deeper than the anxious years that were gone struggle with an evil with must grow if it does not diminish and grief for an added sufferer for one who deserved blessing where he was destined to receive torture this was not the first time by a hundred that hester had kept margaret from her pillow and then driven rest from it but never had the trial been so great as now there had been anxiety formerly now there was something like despair after an interval of hope and comparative ease mankind are ignorant enough heaven knows both in the mass about general interests and individually about the things which belong to their peace but of all mortals none perhaps are so awfully self-deluded as the unamiable they do not any more than others sin for the sake of sinning but the amount of woe caused by their selfish unconsciousness is such as may well make their weakness in equivalent for other men's gravest crimes there is a great diversity of hiding-places for their consciences many mansions in the dim prison of discontent but it may be doubted whether in the hour when all shall be uncovered to the internal day there will be revealed a lower deep than the hell which they have made they perhaps are only order of evil ones who suffer hell without seeing and knowing that it is hell but they are under a heavier curse than it was they inflict torments second only to their own with an unconscious almost worthy of spirits of light while they complacently conclude themselves the victims of others or pronounce inwardly or aloud that they are too singular or too refined for common appreciation they are putting in modern motion an energy of torture whose aspect will one day blast their mind's sight the dumb groans of their victims will sooner or later return upon their ears from the depths of the heaven to which the sorrows of men daily ascend the spirit sinks under the prospect of the retribution of the unamiable if all that happens to be indeed for eternity if there be indeed a record an impress on some one or other human spirit of every chilling frown of every puerilous tone of every bitter jest of every insulting word of all abuses of that tremendous power which mind has over mind the throbbing pulses the quivering nerves the wrung hearts that surround the unamiable what a cloud of witness is here and what plea shall avail against them the terror of innocence who should know no fear 
the vindictive emotions of dependence who dare not complain, the faintness of heart of lifelong companions, the anguish of those who love, the unholy exaltation of those who hate. What an array of judges is here, and where can appeal be lodged against their sentence? Is pride of singularity a rational plea? Is super-refinement or circumstance of God, or uncongeniality in man, a sufficient ground of appeal? When the refinement of one is a grace granted for the luxury of all, when circumstance is given to be conquered, and uncongeniality is appointed for discipline, the sensualist has brutified the seraphic nature with which he was endowed. The depredator has intercepted the rewards of toil and marred the image of justice and dimmed the luster of faith in men's minds. The imperial tyrant has invoked a whirlwind to lay waste for an hour of God's eternal year, some region of society, but the unamiable, the domestic torturer, has heaped wrong upon wrong, and woe upon woe, though the whole portion of time which was given into his power, till it could be rash to say that any others are more guilty than he, if there be hope or solace for such, is that there may have been tempers about him, the opposite of his own. It is matter of humiliating gratitude that were some which he could not ruin, and that he was the medium of discipline by which they were exercised in forbearance, in divine forgiveness and love, if there be solace in such an occasional result, let it be made the most of by those who need it, for it is the only possible elevation to the remorse. Let them accept it as the free gift of a mercy which they have insulted, and a long-suffering which they have defined. Not thus, however, did Margaret regard the case of her sister. She had, but of late ceased to suppose herself in the wrong when Hester was unhappy, and though she was now relieved from the responsibility of her sister's peace, she was slow to blame, reluctant to class, the case lower than as one of infirmity. Her last waking thoughts, as they were very late, were of pity and of prayer. As the door closed behind Margaret, Hope had flung down his pen. In one moment she had returned for a book, and she found him by the fireside, leaning his head upon his arms against the wall. There was something in his attitude which started her out of her wish for her book, and she quietly withdrew without it. He turned and spoke, but she was gone. So this is home, thought he, as he surveyed the room, filled as it was with tokens of occupation and appliances of domestic life. It is home to be more lonely than ever before, and yet never to be alone with my secret, at my own table, by my own hearth. I cannot look up into the faces around me, nor say what I am thinking. In every act and every word I am in danger of disturbing the innocent, even of sullying the pure, and of breaking the bruised reed, would to God I had never seen them. How have I abhorred bondage all my life, and I am in bondage every hour that I spend at home. I have always insisted that there was no bondage, but in guilt, is it so? If it be so, then I am either guilty or in reality free. I have settled this before. I am guilty, or rather, I have been guilty. And this is my retribution. Not guilty towards Margaret, thank God. I have done her no wrong. Thank God I have never been in her eyes. What I must not think of, nor could I ever have been, if she loves Enderby, I am certain. Though she does not know it herself, it is a blessing that she loves him. 
if i could not always feel it so i am not guilty towards her nor towards hester except in the weakness of declining to inflict that suffering upon her which fearful as it must have been might perhaps have proved less than with all my care she must undergo now there was my fault i did not i declare i seek to attach her i did nothing wrong so far but i dared to measure suffering to calculate consequences presumptuously and vainly and this is my retribution how would it have been if i had allowed them to go back to birmingham and had been haunted with the image of her there but of why go over this again when my very soul is weary of it all it lies behind and let it be forgotten the present is what i have to do with and it is quite enough i have injured cruelly injured myself and i must bear with myself here i am charged with the duty of not casting my shadow over the innocent and of strengthening the infirm i have a clear duty before me that is one blessing the innocent will soon be taken from under my shadow i trust so for my duty there is almost too hard how she would confide in me and i must not let her and must continually disappoint her and suffer in her affection i cannot be to her what our relation warrants and all the while her thoughts are my thoughts her but this will never do it is enough that she trusts me and that i deserve that she should this is all that i can ever have or hope for but i have won thus much and i shall keep it not a doubt or fear not a moment's ruffle of spirits shall she ever experience from me as for my own poor sufferer what months and years are before us both what a discipline before she can be at peace if she were to look forward as i do her heart would sink as mine does and perhaps she would try but we must not look forward if her heart must not sink i must keep it up she has strength under her weakness and i must help her to bring it out and use it there ought to be there must be peace in store for such generosity of spirit as lies under the jealousy for such devotedness for such power margaret says when it comes to acting see how she will act oh that it might please heaven to send such adversity as would prove to herself how nobly she can act if some strong call in her power would come in aid of what i would fain do for her i care not what it is if i can only witness my own wrong repaired if i can but see her blessed from within let all other things be as they may the very thought frees me and i breathe again end of chapter 19